Thank you. I am someone. Actually, I'm Brian, who's going to read the scripture today. Um, I just think it's weird that they say someone. Um, we'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 to 28. Sorry about that. Uh, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sons and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Thank you, someone. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, excited to continue in our series for the better. And uh, this morning's uh, message is actually entitled uh, Better Covenant. Better Covenant. Uh, when I was... Uh, in college, undergrad, um, I had a kind of a series of different jobs at different times, and some of those jobs uh, were really good, some of them were horrifying, and uh, I, I did work in different ways at different times, in different seasons, and there was a, a season, uh, my, my junior year, where I was working at the front end of a hotel, and uh, I was like a front-end manager. I had gotten promoted a little bit. And then I was also uh, an SA, which is a, stands for server assistant, at a high-end Italian restaurant. And so I was uh, doing both jobs at the same time. And to kind of summarize things, I was working about 60 hours a week. And so I was working 60 hours a week. I had a full uh, class load at college. I was also a collegiate athlete. And so I had uh, practices and stuff. And uh, it was absolutely stupid. Like, I'm not sure how many hours I slept collectively my junior year. It was not much. Um, one of the routines that I had is I had to uh, be at the hotel to have people check out. It's one of the busiest times at the hotel. And so I had to be there at 4.30 in the morning. So in order to be there at 4.30 in the morning, I had to get up, at, at, I had to leave by 4.15 from my apartment at college. And so I would get up at about 3.30. The, the problem was I was in college, and so I was staying up stupid late also. And I was really close uh, to a minor in biblical languages, which if I had to do over again, I don't know that I would have. It's funny how technology changes. Like back then, I was like, whoa, you can read biblical Hebrew? That's crazy. Now you're like, look, so can my phone. Beep. Like, like, no, but I have a, doesn't matter. Like, what does it say? My kids are like telling me, actually, Dad, that's not what that word means. I'm like, kidding. Uh, but at the time, uh, so biblical Hebrew, for example, is a dead language. And so you don't speak it, although uh, we did for fun, which was 
stupid. But in either case, um, when, when it came time to take the final, you had to take a final on the whole uh, year. So it was an entire year of four days a week. So typically collegiate classes are like a, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or a Tuesday, Thursday. This was four days a week over two semesters. And at the end, it was a vocabulary test and we took index cards. So just, you know how thin an index card is. We put them on the floor and we stacked them up. They were just below my waist that he could choose any of those vocabulary words. So we were just up studying nonstop. So I'm saying that to say, I literally would sleep an hour. It was like a nap. It was dumb. And then I would get up, go uh, work at the hotel, come back in time. So I'd work from 4.30 to 8.30. I'd come back for chapel at nine and classes. And then I would go to practice. And then I would go in the evening to the restaurant. And on weekends, I would do the same. And so it was just absolutely insane. I'm telling you all that because one morning I got up and it was one of those mornings where sleep deprivation just got the best of you. I thought I was sleep deprived then. Then I started having children. And I'll tell you what, whoo, labor. It was, <laughs> she just said Claude when I first started. So I had to, I had to say a little something just to, to bait her a little bit. Uh, we have three children and... Um, and so anyway, we'll move on. The, uh, in either case, I, I was sleep deprived in an insane way in college. So one morning I got up and have you ever been so tired that you're not sure if you really slept or if you still are sleeping and you're driving and you're like, wait, am I awake or am I dreaming about driving? And you're like, did I get here when you park? And you're like looking around. And so I, I park at, uh, at work, I get out and I'm walking into work and I'm looking around I'm like, man, there's like nobody here. There's nobody here because... There's nobody here because I went to the wrong job. So I went to the, I went to the restaurant at 4.30 in the morning and nobody was there. Imagine that. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in the wrong place. And so I jump in and um, we didn't have cell phones and I didn't have any quarters. You guys remember those days? No, like half the room. I was like, oh man, quarters, they were crazy. Some of you were like, what are those? Anyway, so we... <laughs> They were used to make phone calls. It was bizarre. In either case, I get in the car and I'm driving and I'm nervous. Like, you know, what's going to happen? I get to the hotel. I go in. There's a guy there. There's already people lining up because they want to uh, check out. And so he's like, what's going on? I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So we finally get to a break and I just apologize to him. I said, hey, I went to the wrong job. And he knew some of my schedule. And, uh, and he's like, man, you have a problem. I was like, yeah, I know, I need a nap. And he's like, no, he's like, it's one of two things, man. You either are a workaholic or you just love money. And I was like, shut up, man. <laughs> so we never heard from him again. He got lost. It was weird. No, just joking. I'm telling you that story as I stood there with his summation of my life and uh, I'm half awake and half asleep and I'm wondering what's worth it and what's not. And the question I want you to answer and to consider as we move through the text this morning is this, what would those closest to you say you're living for? What would those closest to you say that you're living for? There used to be a, a saying that went something like this, show me your checkbook and I'll tell you what you love, if you've ever heard that saying before. Now, most of us in this room probably would have trouble finding their checkbooks uh, most days, but the principle still remains true. The idea is that if you look where it is that you spend your money, that's probably what it is that you love. 
For some of you, that might be a troubling concept if you start to review uh, the way that you spend money. It's a little bit uh, different around the holidays because you're like, wow, I must really love my family because I'm broke and that's where all my money went. (laughs) But on the regular rhythms of your life, where is it that you spend your treasure? Where do we... Where we put our treasure reveals the priorities of our hearts. I want to go a little bit further than that, though, this morning. I want to submit to you that it's not simply only our treasure that, revol- that reveal our hearts, but in fact, where it is that we invest our time and our talent, as well as our treasure, reveal the priorities of our heart. Where is it? Because sometimes you say, well, this is really easy. I don't have a whole lot of treasure, so I must not have a heart. (laughs) Or I don't know what my affections are, but where do you put your time? Where is it that you invest your time? Where is it that you invest your talents, the the way that you're wired, what it is that you live for? Where you invest those things will reveal what it is that you're living for as well as where you're headed, where you're headed. We touched on this a couple weeks ago, so I won't expound too much except to say that there's a difference between acknowledging our current reality and maybe even our past. And when we talk about past, we're going to talk about past in a couple of different ways this morning. For some of us, the past might be a painful thing. And so when I say past, it, it might resonate with you in a, in a, in a painful memory or in a, a difficult way, and, and that's okay. That's appropriate for the context that I'm using. But past might also simply mean uh, anything that happened beyond the moment we're in right now. So the way that you have dealt with things in the past. So whether it's a painful thing or it's just the reality of, of the way you've lived your life up until this moment, the fact is we can acknowledge our current reality or our past, the way that we've lived our lives up until this moment, or we can be victimized by it. We can acknowledge it or be victimized. There's a difference, right? You can, you can talk about your past, you can talk about your current reality, or you can use it as a reason to justify your actions for today and be victimized by it. The choice is really ours. And so what I want us to do for a second is, is consider the things that maybe we say it's too late for me about. There's some things in your life that you think it's too late. Like this is just the way it is. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's your financial situation. Maybe it's the, something that you want to do every beginning of every year for as long as you can remember. You know, man, I just, I want to I join a gym and stick with it past February. <laughs> like, why is that the thing that defines me? Why is it too late for me? Is this just who I am? Just it? Is this it? End of story. Is it possible this morning that you're believing a lie? That you're believing a lie or that someone else has communicated a lie to you? Or even different yet, is it possible that you're living for someone else? Someone else's priorities have infiltrated your life. And so your past looks a lot more like someone else's dream than really your own. You know, it's interesting when we're in relationships, we tend to, to try and, and be what it is that the other person wants us to be. And then when that relationship comes to an end, we often find ourselves in an identity crisis. Because somewhere along the way, we stopped being ourselves and we started to become what it was that that person wanted us or needed us to be. 
And so our past has infiltrated our reality. We feel alone. We feel lost, broken, frustrated. My wife and I were youth pastors for a decade. We spent a lot of time with teenagers, and we would hear story after story about uh, teenagers that would feel like they were living out the dreams of their parents. They would talk openly about it. It was heartbreaking, mostly because it was typical. There's just this imposed reality, and, and it, was, it was rarely malicious, although there were some malicious instances where parents imposed their life onto their children. But oftentimes it was just, hey, listen, my, my parents have too much vested in this. I can't not do that. Like they put all their eggs in this basket, like this is who I'm supposed to be. So I got to at least give it a shot. Maybe that's you all grown up, being like, I hate this job. But somewhere along the line, my dad said I should, so I'm moving through it. I don't know what your current reality is that you wish was different, but I know that it doesn't have to be that way. Your past does not define you unless you allow it. I'm going to say that one more time. Because when I'm talking about past, I'm talking about anything prior to the moment that you've walked into this room. Maybe it's a painful thing. Maybe it's a not painful thing. Maybe it's a lie. Maybe it's just an imposed reality. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's something good that has become accidentally ultimate. But I want to tell you this morning, your past does not define you unless you allow it. It's such a great word for a new year the idea that we can start fresh or new. It almost seems like too good to be true because oftentimes in the rhythm of our lives, it feels like it's too good to be true. The Hebrew Christians were caught between the past and the future. And we're looking in the book of Hebrews this morning. We're continuing in this series and, and they were caught right in the same tension, in a similar tension. They're caught between the past and the future, the old and the new even the expectation of others. You see, the Hebrew Christians were, were Jews that had literally become Christ followers, and so they were turning away from their lineage. They were walking away from their community, from their livelihood, from their family, from everything that they knew to be true. They were literally taking God risks. The author of Hebrews didn't want them to return to something inferior or temporary. So we see here kind of a, a restating or a summarizing of what it is that they're really pursuing. We see in verse 20 through 22, it says this, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. So the beginning part is making a reference to the pericope prior, saying, listen, Jesus, this one, in verse 22, but this one was made a priest. Jesus was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and then a quotation of Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And then verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. A better covenant. There's actually a lot kind of happening in this text that we need to, to understand, first of all, you have to realize that the Hebrew Christians being raised uh, in the culture that they were raised in, if God spoke, then that was it, end of story, game over, 
shut the door, we're done, no more arguing, no more conversation. And so to say, listen, God has spoken, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. To quote Psalm 110 is to basically say, listen, here's the deal, he's a priest forever. The question is, is Jesus the Messiah? Now, it wasn't a question at this point because of what the author had already set up, but they're pushing the point. And what it is that we need to understand as we look at the context a little bit is how offensive the idea of a better covenant would be. They functioned under a covenant, and that covenant, that Mosaic covenant, was their whole reality. It was the infrastructure of their entire life. And so to say, listen, the way you lived your life, we actually have a better way. It's a better covenant is inherently offensive. This word covenant, it means testament or treaty. There's different ways that covenant can be translated in different uses of the word covenant. And this one, meaning testament or treaty, there's kind of some uh, conversation about whether or not it connects to a cutting covenant, if you will, and commentators agree that the implication is the same. And so what we're talking about with this word is that it's typically used to describe when two kings would meet to agree on terms of mutual benefit for the purpose of peace, covenant. They're going to come together and essentially, in modern days, sign a treaty, if you will. But in those days, they made a covenant. It's where we get the phrase, cut a deal, right? Like we say, hey, let's cut a deal. We don't really think about what the origin of that is, but it's actually rather gruesome. (laughs) So the way covenants would be made back then is that these two kings would meet somewhere and they would say, hey, here's the way that I want our reality to be. They say, yes, I agree with that. When they would agree on terms, then they would get an animal and they would cut it right down the center. Let's cut a deal, right? A little creepier now, right, guys? (laughs) So they would cut this animal down the center. They would have it, half it, have it. You know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) They would cut it in half. Wow, this is going to be a fun one. And so then what they would do is they would walk through and in between this animal as a form of a blood covenant, a treaty, a cutting treaty, cutting covenant. As gruesome as it was, we can actually look back in history, and I'm not just talking about biblical history, um, history in general, where kings are recorded as signing these treaties, these covenants, where they would walk through um, animals that had been sacrificed, and they would actually describe what the consequences of the person to break this covenant would be. They would actually say, in the same way that we have spilled the entrails of this sheep and severed its head, if someone breaks this covenant, Let it be so with their children and their children's children that their entrails be spread on this field and their heads severed. Let's cut a deal. (laughs) Creepy. But it definitely drives the point home. We're not joking around. A deal's a deal, right? It's interesting because there was a difference between a legal binding contract and a covenant. It's funny how our society has turned the covenant of marriage into a contract message for another day. But the fact is, when these people come together, they split this animal in two, as gruesome as it is, if you violate the covenant, you would endure what the sacrifice had endured. And in some cases, there would be what's called a guarantor. A guarantor was legally obligated. The person, it was a legal obligation. They would stand and they would see 
the covenant taking place before them, and then they were legally obligated to make sure that the covenant would be held. And if the covenant was violated, they would communicate the violation, and then the consequences would be dealt with. They had to ensure that the covenant or the punishment of breaking the covenant was carried out. So here, in this text, we understand that something far deeper than simply Jesus being the guarantor of a better covenant is happening. You see, the initiator of the covenant that we're talking about is God. And we as humans bring nothing to the bargaining table besides the sin that makes the covenant necessary. We'll unpack this more in chapters 8 and 9, but for today, we need to realize that this covenant was not made with an animal, but by Jesus' body being broken for us. And if we follow the logic, if we violate this covenant of grace and mercy, what we're deciding to do is take the wrath of God towards sin and judgment and say, I'll take that punishment. I'll break this covenant that God made and I will bear the consequences of my own sin. But it doesn't have to be that way because it's a new, eternal, and better covenant. You see, in the new and eternal better covenant, in verse 22, it says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This word guarantor used only one time in the entire New Testament, and it's only right here. It means Jesus himself will see this through. The rest of this pericope is dedicated to it kind of expounding on how life with Jesus is for the better But what we need to understand and allow to settle within our hearts and minds is that there is a a covenant that has taken place because of the bloodshed of Jesus Christ himself. We can now walk in freedom and the guarantor of that covenant is Jesus himself. That he is actually the mediator. He is the better high priest. So instead of a priest needing to mediate our relationship with God, Jesus says, I will be the sinless sacrifice and I will also ensure that the covenant be played out. That in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of, of our chasing after lesser things, that when we turn and say, but will you be the leader of my life? God, will you forgive me? That Jesus would say, I paid the price for that. Make good on the covenant. My blood will cover that, that sin, that brokenness, that decision. I died for that. He died for you. It's powerful. It's powerful what's taking place in just a simple little sentence that when we really understand the depth of what it is that Jesus has done, that he is not only the sacrifice for our sins, but the guarantor of the fulfillment of the covenant that we have with God. We go on, verses 22, I'm sorry, verses 23 through 28, just kind of unpacking the pericope, the the section of thought on, on how life with Jesus is for the better. It says, the former priests were many in number. There were priests that were mediators because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Kind of common sense, right? When a priest would die, there would have to be a new one. There were many priests, but there's only one. There's one great high priest, and it's Jesus. Verse 24 goes on and says, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those 
who draw near to God. So what's our role? Draw near to God. That's it. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no, let me fix my life. Let me make a New Year's resolution to be a better person. Let me try harder. No, if I just draw near to God through him because of who God is, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, the high priest, is interceding on our behalf. It goes on, verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. You see, in order for a high priest to to go and, and provide a sacrifice for the sins of people, they would have to go through a personal cleansing process because they themselves were human. And so the sins that they possessed. And the author's saying, listen, he's beyond that. He's perfect, sinless. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This, I love this summary where the, the author kind of eloquently sort of offends with, hey, there's a better covenant, and then just breaks it down and then goes through the processes. Are you going to argue with me? Like, look at this better high priest, what it is that Jesus has done. And so we sit here this morning, and I know that we're all over the map in spirituality, people that are that are skeptics maybe that came here this morning unsure about even if there is a God all the way through to committed Christ followers and everyone in between. And with that comes all of our preconceived ideas and what it looks like or what it means to be a Christ follower, what it means to be someone that lives for Jesus. But is it really as simple as as just being convinced like, is that, is, is that it, really? Is it just, okay, I'm, I'm convinced. Jesus is the high priest. His sacrifice is sufficient for me. Done. If it was that easy, then wouldn't New Year's resolutions pan out differently, right? If we had that type of authority over our own lives. Be like, okay, I just decided. I'm a Christian now. Done. <laughs> I suppose there's probably some people that make those types of comments. They're probably part of the reason why some of us in this room have objections to spiritual things because spiritual things have been misrepresented by sinful people. So we have these preconceived ideas. We have a past associated. Any moment prior to this moment right now that's feeding into your perception of who God is or who the people around you are or what their motives are. It's interesting how our past can inform our reality. And if we'll allow it, we become victimized by it. You know, if it was easy as simply making a decision to live differently, then we wouldn't live for lesser things. But we often do. How do we put handles on something so that it can become actionable? So that we can connect the dots, so that we can not only be in full awareness of what God has done, but allow it to permeate our lives. 
There's so many leadership and business books written on this concept, this idea of action, right? Because everybody has some really great ideas on, on how life could be different. You know, listen, you can be a better leader. You can be a different business person. You can be a different uh, parent, a different, you name it, multi-billion dollar business just based on you doing what it is you want to do. Will you take action? But Jesus actually simplifies it. He boils it down in a very simple yet profound way. In Matthew, he's, uh, he's discussing where we should invest our treasure. In Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, they say this. Jesus is speaking and he says this. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And then here's kind of the climax of the profound Verse 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's interesting, the, the saying has kind of flipped that. The, the way the world perceives that has flipped it. And it says, listen, where your treasure is will reveal where your heart is. And, and although we all agree with that, it's different than what Jesus says. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What this text is implying is the way we change our heart, the way we realign our heart, is to invest in what it is we want our heart to be drawn towards. It's a faith thing. It's a risk thing. You can realign your heart. If you want to care about something, invest in it. It's not rocket science, right? If you want to care about something, invest in it. Now, Jesus is talking about money here, but it goes beyond simple money. If you want to care about something, volunteer for it. If you want to care about something, leverage your talents towards it. If you lean into something, it's amazing how all of a sudden you become invested. It's easy to make a commitment verbally, right? Oh, I'm going to do that. I'll tell you what, 2020, I'm going to save way more money. I'm going to lose way more weight. I'm going to become more athletic. I'm going to sleep more. I'm going to eat better. What else do we want to do? Let's add it all on. Why? Because I'm going to do none of it, right? Because I'm just talking. Because blah, 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 blah. That's what we do, right? And then we read a book that says, oh, wow. I can, I can actually do the things I'm talking about? I should buy this book. I'm going to read this book in 2020. Never read it. Does it have an audio book? <laughs> it's just a list of things that we don't take action on. You want to change your heart, change where it is you're investing. So I'm standing there, and this little dweeb is staring back at me saying, oh, you must be a workaholic or you just love money. I'm like, oh, the ways I'd love to snap your neck. No, just kidding. I wasn't that violent. Although I was sleep deprived, so maybe, who knows. I'm just looking at him completely furious and I'm thinking, he doesn't get it. He doesn't know what I'm doing at all. And then I thought, why would he? I've never told him. <laughs> and so I just looked at him and I said, I'm neither, man. 
And he goes, you're neither? How many hours do you work in a week? I was like, I'm averaging about 60 hours a week. He's like, and you're a full-time student, and you play sports. And, you know, and he's like going on the same. I was like, yeah, I know. I'm me. Thanks for the summary of my life. <laughs> he's like, one of those two. I was like, or maybe it's something entirely different. He's like, like what? I said, I'll tell you. I'm working all these hours to make as much money as I can because I'm saving up for an engagement ring because I met the woman I want to marry. He's like, oh. He's like, well, you got different kind of problems then. How old are you? I was like, I'm 20. He's like, you're crazy. <laughs> but it was funny because he had no idea why I was doing what I was doing. And so he drew his own conclusion. There's different types of people in the room this morning. There are people that don't know what they're doing. You're just investing in time and, and in effort, and you're putting energy towards things, and you don't know really where you're headed, or you're headed somewhere you don't even want to go because someone else is imposing it on you, not in some hostage situation, but because you've just gone along with the flow. Or you're really focused about some things, and you've never spent the time to tell others. and They're just drawing their own conclusions on your life. You see, we become invested in lots of things in this life. And some of them are really good things. But none of them should become ultimate things before God. I love my wife. We just celebrated 21 years of marriage on January 2nd. You believe she's put up with me for that long? Oh, and the labor. Whew. No, anyway. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I had a kidney stone, which I hear is way worse. Um, <laughs> moving on. The, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. We do this in our lives. We actually function according to this principle. The things we invest in, the things that we put our time into. Listen, there are things that you didn't care about until all of a sudden your kids signed up for that team. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, when are the practices? <laughs> How much for the uniform? When are the games? What? How many hours of my life will I never get back? <laughs> right? And all of a sudden, you're vested. You're invested in something. And as you get closer to it, all of a sudden, they're like, hey, we're going to raise money. And you're like, yes, I wanted to raise money for this. Awesome. Sell candy bars? Sure. Can I buy out? No. Anyway, so... The, there's all these things that we move our heart and minds toward. Why? Because all of a sudden we have money invested in it. Our treasures invested. All of a sudden our time is in it. All of a sudden our talent is in it. All of a sudden those that we love are invested in it, right? There are things that grab the affections of our heart all the time. All the time. So to say that you're incapable is lying to yourself. The question is, what is it that you will choose to direct your time, talent, and treasure towards? We do it with sports, instruments, education, vehicle, home, wherever you're putting your money, your time, and your talent. And listen, if you can make a change and not be victimized by your past, would you do it? Because if you want to, you can. you can. You can stop 
investing in the temporal, right? Much like the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, stop investing all of your time and energy towards an old covenant. There's a better covenant. You can stop dwelling on the failures and the pain of yesterday. It's amazing how the way we didn't do something last year can be carried over into this year. We can sum ourselves up. But it's not just about stopping. It's about investing in the new, in the eternal, leaning in to the things that really matter taking an evaluation of where it is that you're actually headed if you stay on the path you're on. What does it look like? What does it look like if you just keep leaning into the things you're leaning into? Will it take you getting the whatever it is to realize you want something shinier and newer, better, faster, bigger? Oh, man. Just continuing the path that you've been on? It will take you getting to a place and saying, hmm, now, now I think I have enough money. Finally, I have enough. Said no one in the history of ever. Right? So when does that end? When do you feel secure enough? When do you feel like you've climbed onto the top of the mountain high enough? Because it'll rust. Moths will eat it. It will be destroyed. Are you storing up and laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven? It's not because of willpower, but because you realize that Jesus laid down his life for you and is currently interceding on your behalf. It's when we are awakened by the truth of the gospel that it realigns and reprioritizes our heart and we realize, oh my gosh, I've been so distracted by this world that's just fading away. Start this year going all in on what God has called you to be and do. There's a better version of you. There's a better version of you. If you don't believe you can change, then you don't believe in the truth of the gospel. Because the hinge of the truth of the gospel is contingent upon the reality that God is doing something new in you. That that he finds you so valuable that he has won you and now he wants to grow you. There's a better version of you. Take a God risk. Take a God risk. Have you ever taken a God risk? One of our because and therefore here at Centerway goes like this. Because God sees what we can't, we value God risks. Therefore, we respond when God speaks. Pursue efforts that require supernatural intervention to succeed. And while we aren't irresponsible, we resist the comfort zone and don't maintain or play it safe out of fear. Are you locked up with fear because of your past? Because of what someone else has told you? Because of a lie that's been sown into your life? That maybe you've even sown into your life? 
Are you going to take a risk for something greater with your one and only life and believe this year, not in some empty New Year's resolution or anything, but the idea that you can put handles on it and say, listen, I'm going to invest and lean in with my time, my talent, and my treasure. I'm going to be everything God's called me to be because there's a better version of me. God has a plan for me. If we aren't careful, we'll be bound by our own experiences, our own shortcomings, and we will settle for lesser things. It's not too late. It's not too late. Oh, but I've been investing in lesser things. Okay. Admitting is step one. <laughs> but what are you going to do about it? For some of you, it looks like just redeeming what it is you've leaned in on. I'm not telling you to disengage from things. Like I said a couple weeks ago, I'm not telling you to, to be like, oh my gosh, all of these things, they're sinful. I'm so busy. I'm done with all of them. I should just sit alone in a corner like God wants. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not telling you to be like weird and locked away somewhere. I'm talking about when God leads you to lean in and you're like, oh, 47,000 practices? Awesome. You want to be a ballerina now? Great. How much does that cost? That as you consider what it is that God is leading you, that you realize that maybe that's not just activity for a better college, for a better life, for a better whatever, but maybe it's an opportunity to experience a new sphere of influence that God has strategically placed you in so that you can communicate the truth of God's love, that you can be missionally sent to these teams. You could sit with your kids and say, let's, let's write the names of, of your teammates down. Let's pray for them. Let's be present in the darkest moments of their life. Wait, what happened? Let's lean in, not the way that all the team leans in, but in a different way that's marked differently because we've been redeemed because we're part of a better covenant. Not because we're better, but because we live differently. You see, because otherwise... If you don't talk about it, people will conclude, oh, they're a workaholic too. Oh, they must love money as much as me. I had to communicate to my friend, to my coworker. No, something entirely different has the affections of my heart. It's not about mere money. It's not about working. I'm doing this for a reason. I have a purpose and a plan. I met the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with. And so I am going through extreme sleep deprivation because she makes me better. <laughs> and the illustration runs true in your life if there are people that are concluding what it is that has the affection of your hearts unless you tell them otherwise. So as we wrap things up this morning, we often talk about considering what this requires of us. And so as we consider what the text might require, I want to ask you this question as you leave this place, and I want you to challenge you to, to ask it of yourself as we leave. We're going to respond in a moment through song, but before we do, here's the question. When this week will I lay down my past in order to pursue my future? When this week will I lay down my past in order to pursue my future? That's really where it starts.
Like I said, maybe for some of you, the past is something painful. A lie that you believe about yourself, that your own limitations, your own shortcomings, your own poor decisions, regret, you name it. It doesn't help you to carry it. For others, your past looks like just the moment before you came in here to say, listen, I need to realign the affections of my heart. I need to clarify. We need to have a conversation about what really matters as we enter into this new year. For some of you, the application looks like surrender. When this week will you lay down your past? Is it, maybe for you, it's right now to lay down the way that you've considered your life in the past. To say, I want Jesus to be the Lord and leader of my life. I'll stop struggling to try to fix myself, this cycle that I'm continually on. I'm just going to lay down my best attempts and ask Jesus to forgive me of my sins, to come and be the Lord and leader of my life. Maybe for you, that's your application and the prayer is that simple this morning. You can pray it in the quietness of your seat. I'm not going to make you come up or raise your hand. My goal isn't to embarrass or to count. It's just to simply provide opportunity. Opportunity for you to, to respond to what it is that God is asking. Maybe for others of you, the question is, when will I lay down my past and it's a lie you need to lay down? And maybe it's today. Maybe it's journaling as we go into song. Maybe it's setting time aside as we go into this week to say, I'm just going to process the truth. Some of us are, are so bought into the lie that we need a truth teller to speak, us, speak to us the truth. And so maybe you have to talk to somebody in this room to say, listen, here's what I believe. What's the truth? Because the truth is rooted in the gospel. And sometimes when we're immersed in the lie, we don't see the truth. We need truth tellers to speak it to us. For others, it's when will you lay down your past and take a God risk? Do something that God's calling you to do. All right, I'm, I'm leaning in. And others, maybe it means missional living. You've got all these things, you've crossed the line of faith and you're living for Christ, but you're just so busy doing life that you haven't reoriented it to be part of the mission that God has sent you on and you're just really busy living. It just looks like you're really a workaholic and maybe you just love money because you haven't taken time to consider what it looks like to be missional in the process. Not only are your coworkers and your family and your classmates, but your kids and your siblings are drawing conclusions on what has the affections of your heart. Maybe it's time to clarify and redeem. Let's bow our heads for a moment. You can keep your eyes open if you want or you can close them. I just don't want you to be distracted as the, the team comes up. As they make their way forward this morning, I want to challenge you to consider what your application is. As we respond in song, consider what is it that the Lord is speaking to you right now? I don't know. I don't pretend to know. But I know that God loves you enough to speak to you, to give you impressions on your heart and mind, maybe something that needs to be realigned or rethought, a lie you need to surrender 
or truth that you need to seek out. I just want to pray over you before we respond in song this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning aware of who you are and what you've done. Lord, realizing that we don't have to bear the consequences of the wrath of sin and judgment, but we can walk in a better covenant. That we can be set free because of what it is that you have done and because you didn't simply die for our sins, but you rose again. And when you rose and had victory over death, you go into the presence of the Holy of Holies. Son of God so that we can be children of God. You ensure the covenant. You extend forgiveness towards us and so Lord we come before you grateful and aware of your grace and mercy. Would you realign the affections of our heart as we consider what it looks like to invest in eternal things take steps and God risks to new and better territory, to the unproven, to the unknown, to the not yet. There would be people moved by faith because of what it is you're calling us to do and be for your glory and our joy.